Hello, and welcome back to our Troy and the Trojan War discussion. Today is going to be weird, possibly even a little extra short as these lectures go, because we are in the weird, not necessarily terribly well-tread and well-loved portion of the Iliad at this point. Um, like, to give you an idea, when I teach the Iliad and the Odyssey in my uh, mythology class, um, I routinely skip everything from book 6 to book 15. Um, like, we, we just jump it entirely. Um, the edition that we use in that class, the Essential Homer, which is, you know, this translation, but it is, like, heavily expurgated and heavily edited, and a lot of stuff is removed to make it about half the original size, um, it cuts down the section between 7 and 15 really substantially. Like, the 150 pages that we are reading here basically gets boiled down to, like, 60 um, in Lombardo's edit. Uh, significantly, one of the passages that we are talking about today, namely when Agamemnon sends Odysseus, Phoenix, and Ajax to sort of consult with Achilles, um, that is in there. In fact, that's one of the biggest scenes in there. Uh, but Lombardo doesn't include Book 7 at all. Uh, book 8 is thoroughly truncated, like it's just a shadow of its former self, and everything after Book 9 is equally small until about Book 14, uh, for reasons that we'll talk about when we get there. Um, but suffice it to say that this is not the stuff that people think of when they talk about the Iliad. All of the stuff that you read in the Cambridge Companion to Homer is going to typically gloss over a lot of these passages. Um, we're in the doldrums, in short. Uh, which kind of brings up a really important question that I've only sort of partially answered. Namely, why the hell am I teaching the whole Iliad, if that's the case? Like, why not use the expurgated version or rely on summaries for this passage? Why am I making you read stuff that even scholars of Homer agree is pretty boring and not terribly eventful? Um, and that's a complicated question. Like, on the one hand, part of me just wants to do it. Like, because it doesn't make sense. Because it is something that most people don't do. Like, some part of me as a professor is challenged by this, um, is sort of, like, eager to look at the other otherwise unappreciated passages and sort of draw meaning out of them. Um, part of it, too, is just, you know, this used to be routine. Like, as a professor you kind of exist in this really weird world insofar as you're trying to communicate with people who have zero connection to the stuff that you are passionately devoted to. Uh, like, some scholars will spend their entire lives studying this book, start to finish, top to bottom, all the literature written about it, all the things that other scholars have read about it. They'll read multiple translations of the course of their lives, and they'll, deep they'll dig deep into the actual ancient Greek and be able to tell you all sorts of things about the language and about the specific wording and about the statistics, about like how much a certain word or a certain passage is used. Um, and I'm always caught between those two extremes. Um, like, I'm an adjunct professor. My expertise is not in Homer. I was a philosophy professor. Like, that, that was my major when I was in college. That was what I studied during my first master's. My second master's was in, like, biblical theology, so, you know, that isn't relevant here. Homer is very much a secondary interest to me, much as I may get excited and passionate about it. Um, but as much as all of that is, you know, 
if anything, that would lend, lead you to question, well, then why do I make such a big deal out of it? Why do I, you know, take it so seriously? Why do I insist on having you read the crappy part of the thing that I'm not even that excited about? Because this is what art is. Um, so many of the great classic works of literature, the, the, you know, masterpieces that people have studied endlessly are giant, flabby, and messy. Um, in my humanities section for general humanities, 1400 to the present, uh, we read Goethe's Faust, and it's a mess. It's this play that was composed by this early romantic German author, and, you know, half of it is really compelling and really, like, involved and emotional, and, and like, it, it makes you cry when you read it, and half of it is just digressions and weirdness and side comments and doesn't even have anything to do with the main plot. Um, and we study both, because it's a fairly short play and it takes two weeks to cover the entire thing. And We talk about the really compelling stuff, like Faust selling his soul to the devil and turning out to regret his decision. And we also talk about the weird shit, the time that they spend a whole day in the tavern and they like do magic tricks for a day or the day that they spend on the witch's mountain where Goethe has this whole long digression where like all these random people show up and say like two stanzas and then they walk away and we never see them again like it's weird and random and doesn't make sense and it's kind of difficult to teach and it's very hard to sort of justify but here we are Goethe thought it was important and scholars since have found meaning in it and so we try and appreciate that. The Iliad is similar in that respect. On one level, the Iliad is this profound, great work of literature that everyone thinks is really important, and for reasons that I think are meritorious. We talked at length about the scene with Hector and Andromache and how poignant that is. Um, we have a lot to say and a lot to investigate in so far as Homer is telling us about heroism with, you know, Agamemnon and Achilles and Diomedes and Odysseus and Hector and sort of comparing and contrasting all of these characters and understanding what makes them heroes. Um, we have all this to say about rage and all this to say about violence and war and love and it's all here. But at the same time, it's kind of messy. And the stuff that Homer and his audience would have thought really important and significant, either because of historical reasons or because of, you know, cultural reasons or because this is, you know, part of their shared heritage, you know, like the list of ships and everybody getting excited about whatever, you know, whatever their particular country got named or their particular heroes got mentioned. Um, it isn't to us. And on the one hand, I want us to be aware of what all these other things are doing, what, what other stuff exists in this book. On the other hand, I want it to be engaging. You know, that's the trick here. I am supposed to take all of that scholarly knowledge that has been accumulated by, you know, again, generations, literally millennia of people studying this book and saying it's awesome and spending their whole lives working on it, and, you know, you, my students, who have a wide variety of different experiences who probably wouldn't read a book if, you know, unless some professor made you do it or unless it was really highly recommended by someone you really trust. I am supposed to say to you, okay, this book is occasionally awful, but this is why it's important. This is why it's good. Here, let me 
show you, help you to see why so many people have found this so meaningful for such a long time. And in doing so, let me help you connect to that world of different assumptions and different presuppositions and different perspectives in the hopes that maybe that will help you to be a better person to appreciate other perspectives today. That's kind of the reason why we teach this stuff. But then that question comes back, well then why teach the whole thing? Why not teach the fun parts? Why not teach the important parts? Why not teach just the stuff that is significant? And again, I feel like I'm kind of hard-pressed to answer that here. <laughs> like, this is the part where that question becomes the most difficult to answer. It was super easy for me to say, yes, I totally want to teach the whole of the Iliad back when we were talking about Book 1 and Achilles, or Book 6 and Hector visiting Andromache. And it will still be obvious when we finally get around to Book 15 and we see the dynamic between Achilles and Patroclus, and we see all the drama that sort of evolves from Patroclus's death. That's super easy. But here in books 7 and 8, it's difficult, because this is, by comparison, a slog. Um, and I want to stress, from a structural standpoint, it's difficult. Um, we have, in these three chapters, a succession of non-start plot events. Like, seriously, if you think about it, think about all of the different times that a character tries to do something or something big and important is about to be accomplished, or the entire war is about to be changed by, you know, the interference of the gods or something, and it gets stalled. Like, right there and then, it stops. It happens, like, a dozen times in just these three chapters, sort of culminating in Achilles refusing to go back to the war despite being petitioned by Odysseus and uh, Phoenix and so on. Like, think about it. Let's count these. First off, we have Homer and Paris. They charge back into the battle, they're all excited to go, they kill some people, and then we get this conversation between Athena and Apollo that says, okay, we're going to stop the war again. So right here we have our first non-starter. We're going to plan to do the war again, and now we're not going to. Then we get our second non-starter. Athena and Apollo say, okay, if we're going to stop the war, if we're going to stall everything, then what are we going to do instead? And they're like, okay, we'll inspire Hector to make a challenge, just like we did with Menelaus in Paris. So we have a challenge. Hector stands up and he's like, all right, I will take all comers, let the greatest Greek warrior show up and fight me, and we will decide this here and now. Whoever kills each other, they get to take the armor, as long as they are good to the bodies, and so on and so forth. We'll talk about that later. And we get a challenger, Ajax shows up, and Hector and Ajax fight, and non-starter. Turns out it's dark, so we quit fighting, and everybody goes back to their separate corners, and Hector even gets the line about, like, maybe one day we'll meet again and we'll finish this. So we have two non-starters in Book 7. Then we get a third non-starter in Book 7, perhaps the biggest non-starter of them all in Book 7, namely all the Trojans show up together, and they're like, wow, this sucks, Maybe we should just give Helen back, and Paris is like, no. And Priam apparently backs him up. So instead they give this very weakened version of an offer to the Greeks. And they're like, hey, we will give you all the swag we stole from you if you go home and leave us alone, but we're not going to give you Helen. And the Greeks are like, of course we're not going to take that deal. And again, non-starter. On the one hand, we have the war continuing, and it's stalled by the gods. On the next move, we have Hector declaring a challenge, and this is stopped by just time. 
And then we finally get a potential end to this conflict, and it is stalled first by Priam, and then by the Greeks refusing the deal, even though, honestly, no one in their right mind would have accepted that deal in the first place. But it just continues. Like, in Book 8, it's the same thing. We have Zeus is like, okay, we are done playing around. No gods are allowed to participate anymore. So all of the combat, all the conflict that we've seen before, all that interesting stuff where Athena is like helping Diomedes to charge the Trojan ranks, stalled. No more. No more Athena and Apollo conferring about the best way to proceed with the war. No more Hera and Athena taking the Greek side. No more Aphrodite and Apollo and Ares taking the Trojan side. Nope. Zeus is going to stand there. He's going to fulfill his obligation to Thetis. He's going to zap anyone who starts making an approach on the Trojans. And again and again and again this happens. Like, multiple times, it's like, Hector is charging forward, and we're about to, like, get wrecked. And Diomedes turns around, and he's like, I'm gonna fuck him up. And Zeus is like, no, you're not. And he zaps him. Like, lightning bolt, right in front of the, of the chariot. So Diomedes is like, okay, well, I guess we're not gonna do this. But then he gets his muster up again, and he's like, alright, we're gonna try it again. And Zeus is like, no, you're not. And again, stalled. Finally, Athena and Hera are like, we can't take this anymore. We've got to go help and fight. And they, like, suit up. And they're like, all right, we're just going to wait for Zeus to give us the word we're going to go. And Zeus literally sends them a messenger. No, you will not. Get undressed. There is no way you're going to oppose my will here. So they get stalled again. Like, it's one thing for us to say, okay, this text is boring, or this is a slog, or this is frustrating. But when it happens that consistently, we are now moving from this is something frustrating to read because, you know, it's old and it's different and it has different priorities and we don't understand it, to this is a really obvious decision on Homer's part. He is doing something intentional and artistic here. And obviously, like I said, this culminates in the biggest non-starter of all. Agamemnon's like, wow, Hector has wrecked us, admittedly with Zeus's help. We need Achilles back in the fight. So they send a delegation to Achilles, and Achilles shoots them down. All three of these books do not advance the plot an inch. And that's what's so frustrating about reading them. Like, we want plot development. We are frustrated by stories that go nowhere. We want to see characters grow and change. We want to see the plot move. We want to get closer to our climax with every successive step. And here, Homer is saying, no. We refuse. Every time that something happens that might advance the plot, either Hector is going to like charge forward and destroy the Greeks, or the Greeks are going to fight back against Hector, Achilles is going to rejoin the fray, or Hera and Athena are going to get their day, or Hector is going to engage in a challenge and possibly get killed. Every time, Homer stops it before it gets to the good part. Like, think of the duel with Hector especially, because this is kind of a perfect example of what's going on here, much as, again, this is a section that is completely skipped by... Lombardo and his, his essential Iliad, like, when he cuts out stuff, this is one of the first and most important things he cuts, one of the major things that he cuts. So Hector issues a challenge. He says, okay, 
I'm Hector, greatest of the Trojan warriors. I will challenge any Greek. We will just, like, decide our fates here and now. Um, notice, this isn't, you know, like Paris and Menelaus, for the fate of the war. Like, this is just a one-on-one, -on -one, you know, winner takes the swag. Like, if I win, I take your armor, and I show off that I beat you. If you win, you take my armor and show off that you beat me. Everybody gets their bodies returned safe and sound. Everyone wins. Um... So Hector makes this announcement, and like nine Greek dudes all stand up to potentially fight him. Um, we get a list. This is line 172 on page 133 of Book 7. First up was the warlord Agamemnon, followed by Tydeus' son Diomedes, and the two Ajaxes, clothed in fury. Next were Idomeneus and his companion Meriones, who weighed in like Ares, and Eurypylus, Euameon's fine son, and uprose Thoas and brilliant Odysseus. So we get a bunch of people who potentially show up for Hector's challenge, and they draw lots, and it turns out to be Big Ajax. Now, I should mention right here and now, this is a pretty widespread group of potential competitors for Hector here. On the list, we have Agamemnon, who is the leader of the entire Greek army, and probably is only like volunteering here because he feels an obligation to. Like, he has to show up or be dishonored if he doesn't accept Hector's challenge. Because the fact of the matter is, we haven't seen any evidence that, Ag that Agamemnon can come even close to keeping up with Hector. Like, Agamemnon can hold his own. He's gotten a couple of kills so far, but nothing like half of the other warriors that are on this list. Diomedes probably could keep up with Hector. That would be a good fight. I would watch that fight. Um, like... I imagine that Hector and Diomedes would be fairly evenly mashed, though I suspect that Hector would get the advantage. But then we get the two Ajaxes. Big Ajax and Little Ajax. Telamonian Ajax and the other one, who nobody cares about until he dies, which is hilarious. But that's, again, later and not even in the Iliad. Big Ajax is the one who, should, who actually does fight him. We'll talk about him in a moment. Little Ajax, not so much. Chances are he would not be able to keep up with Hector at all. As for Idomeneus, Meriones, and Eurypylus, like, forget it. Hector would friggin' wipe the floor with these guys. They are, you know, young punks who are showing up just to try and, like, make their name, would rather die to glorious Hector than get accidentally offed during, you know, some skirmish by some rando soldier, which would entirely be possible. Like, yes, they are heroes, but these are D-list heroes at best. Odysseus is the one that really interests me. Because Odysseus is a strong fighter, would be able to hold his own, but his distinguishing characteristic is his intelligence, his cunning, his strategy. Him fighting one-on-one -on -one with Hector would probably mean that Hector would kick his butt, unless Odysseus has a plan, which is entirely possible. Like, I kind of wish that Odysseus and Hector got to duel here, because we would see some weird friggin' fighting. Odysseus would probably be a fascinating person to watch in this sort of dual context. It's a shame that we never get to see that so much. Um, but we get big Ajax. Now, they start by insulting each other because, you know, that's what you do. Like, they do, their, um, they do their sacrifices to the gods. They pour out a libation to Zeus like you do because, again, gods get ticked if you don't honor them. We get the taunting, like, Ajax insults Hector and Hector insults Ajax. And then they start to, you know, actually attack each other. And let's watch this transpire because it's actually kind of interesting how it takes place. 
This is line 255 on page 135 of book 7. The taunts were over. Hector carefully balanced his spear, and when he threw it, its long shadow swept over the earth, and it bored through the bronze skin of Ajax's shield and through six oxhide layers, but the seventh layer of leather stopped it. So Hector gets the first throw. He throws. It goes through most of the shield, but it's stopped by the last layer. Like, by a hair's breadth, the point of the spear does not penetrate Ajax's shield. It was Ajax's turn then. His long-shadowed spear crashed through the round of Hector's shield and ripped into the intricate breastplate, the point shearing his shirt and nicking his ribs as Hector twisted aside from Black Fatality. So, by contrast, when Ajax throws his spear, Hector barely gets out with his life. Like, it rips through his shield, rips through the breastplate, tears his shirt, and even nicks his ribs. So, like, it goes all the way through flesh as well. Like, it hits his bone. It's not a fatal wound. Hector has twisted aside here. We might get a suspicion that, like, Hector is a little more agile than Ajax is, or that Ajax needs to be. But it's very clear, even from the first throw, Ajax has the advantage here. Hector is the underdog. Ajax is bigger, Ajax is stronger, Ajax is better equipped. Hector is in trouble. So they wrenched their spears back out and went at each other again like lions after raw meat or wild boars in rut. Hector stabbed his spear dead center into Ajax's shield, but the bronze point crumpled on its surface. So Hector stabs at him with the spear. Like, we've retrieved our spears, having thrown them. We attack each other directly with the spears, wielding them as, like, weapons in the hand rather than flinging them. Hector gets the first lunge, and the spear point immediately crumples. This is a heck of a shield that we're talking about on Ajax's part. Remember, like, seven oxide layers under bronze? Like, you do not mess with this thing. The only reason that Ajax can carry it is because he's huge. This tower shield is immense and crazy heavy. So Hector stabs it, and his point just, like, crumples. So his spear is done. Like, no more spear for Hector. And Ajax was upon him, thrusting his spear hard through Hector's shield. The force of the blow stunned him, and the point grazed his neck, drawing dark blood. So again, we get this exchange. Hector goes first, stabs the shield, spear doesn't penetrate. Ajax goes second, spear goes right through Hector's shield, and nicks him on the neck. So we go from took a wound to the ribs to now we are getting dangerously close to killing Hector. Ajax clearly has the advantage here. Like, as far as this duel is going, it seems like it is only a matter of time until Ajax does, does in fact kill Hector. This didn't stop Hector. He gave ground and picked up a stone, gripping it in one hand, a huge black slab lying in the plane, and heaved it onto Ajax's massive shield, hitting it on the boss. The bronze rang like a gong. So Hector... No more spear moves to throwing rocks at people, which you'll notice Diomedes has done this as well. Apparently this is, like, obvious strategy number two when you're fighting somebody and, you know, things are getting kind of tough for you. Pick up a rock and chuck it at someone. Hector is a strong dude, so he picks up this massive slab of rock, throws it at Ajax. Ajax deflects it with his shield, but the thing rings like a gong. But Ajax responds in kind. Ajax, in turn, picked up a much bigger rock, the size of a millstone, and whirling around, put his enormous strength into the throw, crushing Hector's shield and buckling his knees. So again, Ajax matches Hector's move. 
blow for blow. Hector throws a spear, Ajax throws a spear. Hector stabs, Ajax stabs. Hector throws a rock, Ajax throws a rock. But every time Hector does something, it doesn't even come close to touching Ajax, and it's getting weaker and weaker as we go. Every time that Ajax responds, it gets scarier and scarier for Hector. Ajax stab or throws his spear and it penetrates Hector's shield, stabs him in the ribs. Ajax stabs at Hector and it grazes his neck. Ajax throws a stone at Hector and it crushes his shield, like the shield is now out of commission. So Hector is standing there with no shield, no spear. His rock was weaker than Ajax's, he can't keep up with him on that level either. But Apollo, or, but Apollo quickly put him on his feet again, and they would have gone at each other with swords had not the heralds, Zeus's messengers and men's, come forward from both sides. Talthibius and Aedaeus, prudent men both, they held their staffs between the two combatants, and Aedaeus made this formal pronouncement, Fight no more, dear sons, nor battle more. Zeus beyond the clouds loves you both, and you are both spearmen, as we all know. Now it is night, and it is good to yield tonight. Notice, Hector's saved by the bell here. Like, Hector is on the ropes. Ajax is taking him apart. A couple more of these, and he is done. Like, if it did in fact come to swords, you can bet the next part of this story would be Hector swung at Ajax with his sword, Ajax caught on his shield, and the blade shattered. And then Ajax swung his sword and friggin' decapitated Hector. Like, that's the sort of or ramping up that we're seeing over the course of this duel. It's clear. Everything Hector does, Ajax can do better. Ajax is the superior hero here. Ajax is going to beat Hector. Ajax is going to kill Hector. Except that it's nighttime, so nope, never mind. So, again, this pattern is repeated from through book 7 to 10, constantly. Anytime some new advance in the plot is going to take point, it's immediately going to be rescinded. Homer is going to stop it in its tracks. We think that, you know, the war might be, the war will continue into the Greek lines? No, Hector's going to camp for the night by the boats. We think that Hector's going to die in the duel with Ajax? Nope, turns out it's nighttime, Hector refuses to fight anymore. Um, we think that Achilles is going to jump back into the fray? Nope, that's not going to happen, he's going to continue sulking in his tent. Everyone in this story is trying to move things forward, except that it keeps not happening. Because of fate, because of the gods, because of the rage of Achilles, because of the stubbornness of the characters, and because of the simple passage of time, the natural world around us. And I think that this is exactly what Homer is trying to communicate to us. Many scholars have argued that much of the early material in the Iliad was probably stolen or borrowed or whatever by Homer to sort of give us an appropriate beginning to this text. Like, this is a story that takes place in the ninth year of the war. The war has been going on for a long time, but Homer still needs to introduce the major characters, show us the major dynamics, introduce the major conflict, all that stuff. So notice what he does, based on what we've read so far. He starts off with what is happening right now, namely Agamemnon and Achilles at each other's throats. So there's our hook. We have this epic argument between these two great heroes, these most important figures on the Greek side. Like, Homer shows us the conflict, develops it, whets our appetite for it, and then gets off of it. 
Achilles isn't going to show up again until book nine. Like for eight books, Achilles is presumably sleeping or sulking in his tent. We don't see hide nor hair of him. Instead, book two, we get the list of ships. Book three, we get the duel between Menelaus and Paris, which probably should have happened ages ago. We get the list of Greek heroes by Helen telling them to Priam, even though both of them should know exactly who these people are after nine years of fighting them. All of this seems out of place. So again, most scholars would argue Homer is including this material from what is likely an earlier epic in the Great Trojan Cycle in order to introduce characters and do all the introductory material that he himself is not allowed to do because, again, we're nine years into the war. So then we get Book 5 and Book 6, and there is, in fact, dynamism. The war continues. Diomedes charges forward, Hector goes back to the city, and we see him interacting with his family. Everything is brought to a halt, and then what? Well, here is our answer. Then nothing. Over and over and over again, more stalling, more frustration, more prolonging this war. If the first chapters are designed to introduce us into the dynamics of these characters, here is the conflict between Achilles and Agamemnon. Here are the major players on the Greek and Trojan, Trojan side. Here is Paris and Menelaus, the two, you know, suitor or competing rival suitors for Helen's hand, the whole reason why this war exists, fighting each other inconclusively. Now we get more inconclusiveness. And I think what Homer's trying to illustrate to us is why this war has taken so long. Like, we've read three, four chapters of frustrating non-starts. Stuff that gets cut from virtually every version of the Iliad that wants to, you know, make it more accessible to readers, specifically because it doesn't advance the plot. But what Homer is emphasizing here is, that's the plot. Remember, the Iliad is a ten-year-long war. It's got way more false starts and non-starters and inconclusive conflicts than it does big, momentous, game-changing moments. We've had nine years of challenges that were inconclusive, either because Paris got whisked away by Aphrodite or because it's night, so now we're done fighting. We've got nine years of bailed charges. Diomedes trying to take out Hector but getting stopped in his tracks by Zeus's lightning bolts. Nine years of half-hearted attempts to make the war stop. Priam sitting in his council with Paris and Hector and all of these other characters, them saying, why don't we give Helen back? And Paris being like, I don't wanna, and that kind of winning the day. What Homer is emphasizing in these chapters, and what is so painful and frustrating and boring to read, is the fact that it's still going. Homer's giving us a glimpse of the day-to-day -day business here, of how frustrating it has been to be a soldier for nine years in this situation. Every time that you try and gain ground, you're just pushed back an equal amount. Everyone is frustrated. Everyone is exhausted. Everyone is annoyed. And everyone is bored. That's what you're feeling, because that's what Homer wants you to feel. And this is always dangerous. 
like I should emphasize this. Like I dabble in writing and I definitely study, you know, writers and technique quite a bit in my time. It's always tricky to try and depict frustration, boredom, you know, inconclusiveness, non-starting, things that just keep happening or cycles that never seem to end. But a lot of there's a lot of truth in this thing. Our lives are frequently done like this. You know, it's probably not as obvious to you now that you are, you know, college students or, like, at the beginning of your lives, just coming out of teenagerdom where everything really is exciting because it is happening for the first time. But I say this as, you know, a 35-year-old dude who's been teaching these classes over and over and over again for the last five years of my life after, you know, taking classes and doing advanced degrees and so on. You know, the daily grind is a real and present part of everything that I do. Right now, as I record this on July 6th, as much as I am, you know, teaching this lecture, I very much am frustrated by my own life. I have you know, a drain in the bathtub that keeps getting stopped up, and I've got bills to pay, and I've got, like, a surgical procedure that I'm trying to, you know, organize, and I've got an air conditioner that's on the fritz, and, you know, my wife comes home every night exhausted from work, and I return to recording lectures virtually every day, and we're stuck. We live in a crappy apartment, and there's no chance of us getting a house anytime in the near future, and our situation refuses to advance. Fate has it in for us. And as much as that means that I don't want to read stuff like this that is, you know, again, frustrating and boring and speaks to the apparent futility of a lot of what life is is doing on its day-to-day -day basis, I also frequently find it consoling when someone can take that and turn it into something heroic. And that's kind of what Homer is doing here. Homer is emphasizing that the day-to-day -day grind is something that heroes have felt and done as well. You know, as much as we might say, wow, it sucks that I have to keep teaching the same classes over and over and over again, or keep reading the same books over and over and over again, or keep going to work and doing the same crappy minimum wage job over and over and over again, as much as I've constantly got to deal with basic personal hygiene irritations or car maintenance or any of the things that make contemporary life obnoxious, Homer gets that. Even in the greatest war that has ever been recorded, as far as Homer is concerned, even amongst some of the greatest heroes who have ever lived, Homer is emphasizing, yeah, they got shit jobs too. They also have to deal with the daily grind. They also have been repeatedly frustrated in their efforts to get everything done. Yeah, Achilles is annoyed and frustrated and bored too. As is Hector and Diomedes, and Ajax, and Odysseus, and Agamemnon, and Priam, and Paris, and so on and so forth. So it's okay. If you are really frustrated and annoyed with your life, that's okay. Because heroes are frustrated and annoyed with their lot as well. And if anything, we're just going to see more of this as time goes on. Frequently in this text, as well as in the Odyssey, you'll see that these heroes are very dissatisfied with their lot. You know, Achilles is the greatest warrior on the Greek side, and his entire expression at this point is, I'm going to sulk in my tent because I'm not getting enough honor. This doesn't seem too far off 
from the person who refuses to go back to their job because they're not getting the recognition they deserved. The one who, you know, refuses to turn in 100% effort because they've repeatedly been passed up for promotion. They're not far removed. So this is what Homer is trying to express, I think. I don't think this is an accident. In fact, based on the repetition here, the fact that, again, for the last 50 pages, it's just been non-starter after non-starter after non-starter, and every one of the dramatic moments that we've had ultimately culminates in the same non-starting sort of conclusion or lack of conclusion, that's deliberate. I can't imagine it being any other way. Now, again, I should emphasize, just because it's intentional doesn't make it good. Um... Lots of art, again, like I said, attempts to grapple with the day-to-day -day ugliness of the world, the realities, the frustrations, the inconclusiveness, the non-starter parts of, you know, day-to-day -day life. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's multiple sort of ways to interpret this. On the one hand, I've got to say, like, reading this passage and, and seeing all this non-starter and all this potential stalling here... I'm really tempted to compare what Homer is doing with a lot of the criticisms that have been leveled at the contemporary streaming world. Like, I know that this is kind of a weird connection to make, but, you know, bear with me. I promise that this will make sense in a moment. Um, many times as I read criticism of, like, contemporary television, like, again, it's June of 2022. We are recently, you know, on the heels of watching the Star Wars Obi-Wan series, which is itself the successor to the Mandalorian and the Book of Boba Fett. We also get, like, the Disney Plus Marvel series and, like, Stranger Things 4 just released a little while ago. Um, a lot of the time when these sort of brief run of shows get released or sort of, like, appear on the various streaming services, um, some of my favorite critics online get really grumpy and very much end up criticizing them for the same reasons over and over again, namely that they're boring. Like, Obi-Wan has six episodes, and it takes them, like, three episodes to get anywhere. Or you end up with entire episodes that are nothing but just, like, marking time until the big climax in episode six. This is kind of endemic to the whole streaming services, you know, trying to keep you watching episode by episode. Like, why couldn't this just be a movie? You know, why do we need six hours worth of stuff to tell this story? Um, and I want to emphasize, that's bad writing. Like, that's not intentional. That's not an effort to sort of describe futility or to capture those sort of frustrations of human life. Uh, that's just... We need to have six episodes, but we only have three hours worth of story, so we're going to, like, dribble it out to you piecemeal, and that's that sucks, and that's why half that stuff is crap. Um, like, I'm a huge fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I love the movies consistently, but I have been routinely disappointed by the, like, streaming shows that have come out. Um, the one exception is Loki. I loved Loki, but that's just me, because I'm weird. Um... But by contrast to this, I want to sort of also point to the stuff where it is intentional. Like, there are a lot of writers, especially in the 20th century, that have sort of emphasized this, again, daily grind business, the futility of existence, so on and so forth. Whether it's the surrealism of something like Kafka with the metamorphosis or the trial, especially, all the way up to, you know, 
the contemporary writings of someone like David Foster Wallace, who routinely expresses, you know, his frustration and dissatisfaction with the world through surprisingly luminous prose, these are good works that do the same job here. Um, like, Kafka manages to make the frustrations of modern-day life harrowing, painful. Like, the trial is incredibly engaging because it's so frustrating and surreal and kind of awful to read. Um, Wallace takes the entire opposite approach. Like, Infinite Jest is, again, a book about stalling, a book about sort of inconclusiveness. The whole plot is that, you know, there's this guy who makes this this movie that is so engaging that everybody watches it, but the story of this movie itself doesn't go anywhere for a thousand pages. But Wallace is so entertaining about it. There are all these little distractions and comedic moments and jokes and ridiculous, like, scenes that it's just, you forget entirely how frustrating all of these characters' lives are, how much they are trying to accomplish things that never actually happen. Um, that's not what we're seeing here in Homer. Or at least, it isn't to me. And I imagine that you're feeling something similar. Um... I think Homer is definitely trying to make this point. It's too obvious to be anything but deliberate. But he doesn't advance things. Like, there are ways to communicate these ideas without necessarily, like, just stalling all of these practices, you know, preventing things from, from taking place. Uh, so we as modern audiences are probably right to, like, throw the side eye at this and be like, this is boring, nothing is happening, why are we reading this? But to the Greeks, I'm not sure if this would have been quite so miserable. Um, like, to sort of give you an idea of what I'm thinking about, like, as another, you know, contemporary example of trying to communicate this, um, one of my favorite video game companies is Supergiant Games, and they are an indie studio, and they do a lot of really cool stuff, like their first game was Bastion, I loved it, their second game was Transistor, I didn't love it immediately, but I have come since to, like, absolutely adore it. Their most recent game, which apparently is their most famous one and everybody is playing these days, is Hades. You know, a game about Greek myth, so even more relevant to what we're doing here. Uh, but what Supergiant is doing is a roguelike, i.e. a game where you repeatedly beat your head against the same levels over and over and over again, which are procedurally generated, and you get more and more frustrated, but eventually you beat the game, theoretically, after endless numbers of runs. But it's intentional. Like, this game is meant to escalate. It is meant to be difficult. You are meant to beat a head, your head against it over and over and over again. And the game compensates for this by having lots of new entertaining dialogue every time you run through the dungeon, by having randomized elements that you can't predict. Even some of the boss fights are unpredictable. But notice that they are expressing essentially the same idea that Homer is. They are keyed into that Greek perspective here. This idea of Sisyphean futility doing the same thing over and over and over again in order to try and get a different result and getting nothing. Just dying in the case of Zagreus and Hades. Just stalling the war even longer in the case of Hector and Diomedes. I think Homer is communicating a very Greek idea, a kind of story that Greeks were very interested in hearing, in a way that we in our contemporary world, might find more tedious than helpful. And I suspect that that has to do with the means. I don't know. I'm not Greek. I'm not living in the 9th century BCE. 
I can't tell you for sure. But I can tell that this is what he's trying to get across. He is trying to get across the frustration of this war. And as much as I, Professor Kozlowski, may be a little remiss in having you read this slog of a section, I think it's important that you recognize that. That you see that Homer has these ideas in mind as well. Ideas that are very modern. Ideas that we identify with in the 20th century through the works of Kafka or David Foster Wallace or through contemporary video games or through contemporary streaming services. This is a really contemporary idea that Homer's trying to get. And I'm 90% sure that's exactly what he's trying to communicate here. Again, it's so obvious. There's so much repetition. It's so consistent for these three books. It is meant to be frustrating. It is meant to suck in some sense. So to sort of like follow up with this, my advice to you is to read yourself as you are reading this book. You know, you should be doing that anyway. Like, that's one of the great things about college, is we get you to read all this weird stuff, and we kind of expect you to react to it in a variety of different ways. Part of what this whole business is, is you got to learn to watch yourself reading, watch yourself watching, watch yourself playing. Whatever media you are engaging with, you've got to be, on the one level, aware of what that thing is telling you, but also aware of how you are reacting to it and why and whether that reaction is what the author is trying to get you to do or whether it isn't. If you are frustrated reading this part of the book, you got to ask yourself the question, does Homer want me to be frustrated, and if so, why? I think he does. And I think he wants you to be frustrated because it contributes to his overall idea. As much as, you know, that first passage, full of drama, is emphasizing, you know, Achilles' rage caused all this pain, all this suffering of the suffering of the Greeks, now, here, you feel it. Like, Zeus specifically says, this is it. I made this promise to Thetis, now I'm going to put it into motion. And it is vicious. Like, Hector is charging forward and the Greeks are like, we gotta fight back. And every time that they do, Zeus strikes them with lightning. Like, to the point that we see heroes, like, real legit heroes, like Agamemnon and Odysseus, turning tail and running away. And on the one hand, you might be tempted to say, they're cowards. Like, people even call them cowards. Diomedes is like, what, you're gonna let this happen? But then Diomedes tries to charge forward when he saves Nestor, and Zeus strikes him with lightning again. And Diomedes is like, well, that's not going to stop me. And Nestor's like, no, seriously, you need to turn around and run. There's no way of winning here. Zeus is against you. Like, we've seen gods hit the field before. Remember when Diomedes is charging forward in the Trojan ranks with Athena's superpowers behind him, and he sees Ares, and he's like, well, shit, I'm out. That's the right thing to do there. He's correct in doing that. And when Athena calls him out on it, he's like, dude, you said don't fight any gods except Aphrodite. I saw Ares coming, so I ran away. And Athena's like, yep, that's the right move, but now I'm standing right next to you, and we can totally take it. And they do. We advance. But we're not dealing with Ares anymore. We're dealing with friggin' Zeus. 
who starts this entire chapter in Book 8 by saying, I am so powerful that I could take the entire gods of Olympus, the mountain itself, and the world, and draw it up on a string. And the gods are like, yep, that tracks. That checks out. Now the gods do frequently get them over on Zeus. You know, as we talked about earlier, like Athena is clearly Zeus's favorite. She manages to sort of manipulate him a little bit. Hera sees through all his posturing. Zeus isn't omnipotent, but when Zeus is fixed, when Zeus says, I am going to fuck over the Greeks and there's nothing anyone can do about it, he's not kidding around and he's right that they can't. Hera and Athena are like, uh, we'll just sneak down and help them out a little bit. And Iris shows up and they're like, you better not. Like, we even get that great line, and I love this, where she's like, he's very disappointed in you, Athena. Hera, he expects this from, because she's the worst. But you, we would expect more. And it's just, again, hooray, double standards. And, you know, once again, we see a glimpse of, like, Zeus very clearly has Athena as his favorite daughter here. Um... But nonetheless, the point is, this is Zeus we're talking about. Nobody can fight Zeus. Nobody at all. Maybe, under the right circumstances, a bunch of gods teaming up, like, can sneak up on him and take him by surprise. Like that story that we heard a little bit earlier about Thetis actually saving Zeus from being bound by the other gods. But now, when he's on full alert, lightning bolts in hand, yeah, Diomedes is wrong to charge. Every time that he pushes forward and the lightning strikes near his horses, he's getting a message. No. You are not going to win this war. You are not even going to be able to fight this war. I am Zeus. This is a wall. You cannot get through it. And again, that's frustrating. But it very much emphasizes exactly what Homer's trying to get across here. All of those things that we hate about modern life, the things that we find frustrating, the things that Kafka and Wallace and Supergiant Games are writing about, we think of as being our fate, as being something we are doomed to do. I have no choice but to unclog the bathtub or suffer worse consequences. I have no choice but to take my car into the shop or I'm going to have to buy another car. I have no choice but to record these lectures, or I will be fired and have to get a worse job. That sucks, but that's the way things go. And yes, we might have big talk about revolution, and about changing the way the government works, or overcoming capitalism. That is all talk. Like, don't get me wrong, you know, the revolution comes, I will be very excited to, you know, throw my hat in with, with the rest of them. But that's not how revolutions work, historically. You don't, like, sit around and then have a conversation and then change the way the economy happens. Like, that's never happened. Sure, you've got communist revolutions in Russia, but guess how messy they were and how far from the original intention they actually ended up landing. No one of us is going to change the entire fate of the universe that easily. These are forces that are outside of our control. They're far more powerful than we can deal with or be able to seriously affect or change. The Greeks feel that too. The Greeks recognize in their gods the same omnipresent and all-powerful forces that we feel here in the 20th century. 
The difference is minimal at best, and Homer's communicating that to us. Where we see capitalism or the government or, you know, like human nature, sin in the case of Christianity, the Greeks see Zeus and Ares and Athena. They see fate, capital F, hanging over all of them. This is the wall. Congratulations, you've crashed up against it. And that's right where Homer wants you to be. Because there in Book 9, after all this, you know, false starts and, you know, frustration and Greeks trying to get ahead and not actually succeeding, we get to Achilles. Achilles is the one on whom all of this depends. If Achilles rejoins the fight, Zeus is going to stop attacking the Greeks, so that would be good. If Achilles joins the fight, he's the one who can very clearly take out Hector, like multiple people during this section have mentioned. Hector wouldn't even come out from behind the walls while Achilles was on the field. So if Achilles joins it back up, we're good. Like, that's the way to break through the wall. That's the only way that the Greeks can get out of this corner that they've been boxed into. And it is a tough corner. Like, I'm honestly kind of fascinated by the how quickly their fates turn around in this section. Like, in Book 7, we get that, all right, everybody goes back to their separate corners because it's nighttime business, you know, the duel is canceled, the Trojans go back and they're like, hey, we should you know, reopen this conversation about giving Helen back, and Pyrrhus is like, pass, we are not doing that, and Priam's like, okay, which honestly, I really want to call out Priam there, like, dude, you're really going to just keep indulging Paris like this? He comes off as totally non-committal there. Like, he accepts that Paris is responsible for the war, but he doesn't seem to blame him. He just sort of, like, throws up his hands, and he's like, well, you heard Paris, I guess there's nothing we can do. Um... So they give the crap offer to the Greeks. And notice how Diomedes responds to this. Um, this is on page 140. This is book 7, line 411. Um, he spoke, and they were all hushed in silence until Diomedes' martial voice boomed out, except nothing from Alexander, not even Helen. Even a fool can see the noose is tightening around the Trojans. There's a lot to unpack in that tiny little response there. How, first, we're not going to accept anything from Paris, like, on principle. He's the worst, which, you know, can you blame them? He is kind of the worst. Like, we actually did, in fact, see him fight in Book 7, which is nice. You know, Hector and he just go charging into the field, and obviously Hector does way more damage than Paris does, but Paris does get a few significant kills. But notice, not even Helen. Like, this is something we're going to come back to a few times over the course of this book. As much as everyone agrees Helen is the cause of the Trojan War, we need to recognize the fact that it has long since stopped being about Helen. Helen may have been the spark that lit the fire, but you can't stop the spark now. It's irrelevant. That ship has sailed, that explosion has happened, that war is well underway. The reasons why the Greeks and Trojans are both fighting at this point have very little to do with Helen. Like, even think of Hera. Way back when there was that conversation with Zeus back in Book 4, like at the very beginning of Book 4, after the duel, everyone's like, well, I guess Menelaus won. Does that mean we have to give Helen back? And Zeus is like, okay, so we're going to give, we're gonna have him give Helen back, and, you know, we're done here, right? And Hera's like, hell no. I am not going to stop until that whole city lies in ruins. 
I have done too much work to let my plans fall. No, we are out to get blood vengeance here. The gods have that as their motivation, and you better believe the Greeks do too. So Diomedes isn't interested in Helen. But notice what he says. Even a fool can see the noose is tightening around the Trojans. Diomedes is at least in part this confident about rejecting their offer because he believes they're going to win. Like, this is just a matter of time. Now, admittedly, they're coming right off of Ajax, nearly killing Hector, the greatest warrior that the Trojans have. So even at this point, Diomedes is like, dude, we don't even need Achilles. Like, Hector is not the big scary threat we thought he was. We thought that he was going to wreck everybody. And yeah, he's done some serious damage, but Ajax can clearly stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with this guy. We're going to beat it. The noose is tightening. And notice, by the end of Book 8, it's entirely reversed. Hector is encamped by the Greek ships. Like, he even gives instructions to his troops. If they come out of their bolt holes, if they come out of their tents, if they walk along this sort of, like, hastily erected palisade that they've made, you shoot them. Even if they're trying to get back to their ships, even if they're trying to go home, you're going to make them remember this when they go back to their families because they got an arrow in the leg. Like, Hector is now supremely confident, and the Greeks are at their lowest. They got wrecked today. Zeus is clearly on the Trojans' side. The Greeks have no chance to fight back. The Trojans are just riding roughshod over them. All in the course of a single day, in the course of a single book. Which... It's fascinating that we're saying, on the one hand, you know, this is the really boring, sloggy part where nothing happens. On the other hand, that's an incredibly dynamic shift in the way that this battle has been going. Like, up until Book 6, the Greeks typically are on the offensive. They're doing more of the damage. You know, Hector goes back into Troy specifically because Diomedes is wrecking them with Athena's help. But then Zeus shows up, and it's like, whoop! Totally the opposite direction. Everything has changed for the Greeks. We have gone from, we don't need your stinking offers, we will destroy you all by yourself, any idiot can see that, to, oh god, oh god, we're all going to die, somebody get Achilles. So under this circumstance, we actually do send an envoy to Achilles. And this, again, is a passage that scholars do talk about quite a bit. Because here we get some of the longest speeches in the whole Iliad. And as much as this is just a talking scene, there's a lot of rich thinking, a lot of rich philosophy, so to speak, a lot of perspectives that are really well articulated here between Odysseus, Phoenix, Ajax, and Achilles. So what time we have, I want to spend sort of walking through that sort of give and take here. So first off, Agamemnon makes an offer. And I should stress... This is a good offer. Like, Homer spends, you know, repeats the offer when Agamemnon says it, and when Odysseus repeats it to Achilles. It's verbatim in both cases, except for, like, who is giving the offer. Odysseus definitely speaks, you know, as the, you know, messenger here, um, and makes a couple of changes as he sees fit. Um, so let's look at how Odysseus presents it to Achilles, um, because, you know, again, either one of them will be equally acceptable since they're practically identical. Um, so this is page 167 of book 9. Odysseus 
is one of Achilles' closest friends, apparently. Like, Achilles welcomes Odysseus, Phoenix, and Ajax when they come to his tent. We do not get, you know, immediate suspicion or hostility the way that we did when, like, Agamemnon's lackey showed up to take Briseis away. Um, so, and Achilles even says, this is line 201 in Book 9, Welcome, things must be bad to bring you here, the Greeks I love best, even in my rage. And he does the hospitality stuff. Like, he gets Patroclus to bring wine, and they all drink, and they do the sacrifice, and, um, like, then Odysseus finally makes his, makes his speech here. And Odysseus starts with strategy, as you would expect from Odysseus. Um, it is doubtful that we can save the ships without your strength, he says at line 233. The Trojans and their allies are encamped close to the wall that surrounds our black ships, and are beating, and are betting that we can't keep them from breaking through. They may be right, Zeus has been encouraging them with signs, lightning on the right. Hector trusts this, and his own strength, and has been raging recklessly like a man possessed. He is praying for dawn to come early so he can fulfill his threat to lop the horns from the ship's sterns, burn the hulls to ash, and slaughter the Achaeans dazed in the smoke. This is my great fear, that the gods make good Hector's threats, dooming us to die in Troy far from the fields of home. Notice, this is a real and present danger for the Greeks. Like, as much as this is home for the Trojans, and we've seen that the Trojans are fighting desperately because they're protecting their homes, their wives, their children, and we even get a, an explicit line about that earlier on, um, the Trojans are fighting for really good reasons here. But notice that the Greeks, if they get their ships burnt, they can't go home anymore. The Greeks rely on their ships to deliver stuff to them. Like, they're getting regular shipments of wine and like, sacrifice material all the time. If they are not able to sail anymore, if they're not able to leave the Trojan shores, then they're just screwed. Like, the best they can hope for is a piecemeal evacuation until the Trojans just straight up overrun them. Like, they're done. Even if they win, even if they manage to conquer Troy, they're going to be stranded here. They're never going home again. And on the one hand, I have to kind of wonder why Hector is even making this move. Like, this seems to be a bit of a blunder. Because if the Greeks are, in fact, this corner, they're gonna fight back in a way that they haven't fought back before. Hector should be leaving the ships available so they can all run away. Like, Hector should be absolutely be cutting them off from, I don't know, their food supplies. Like, we've already been told that Apollo apparently was striking down all the cattle with plague. If Hector could seize those, then he'd probably be in better shape. But he's got the ships. For the Greeks, though, they are terrified. They need to be able to go home. Like, even if this thing turns bad, they need to be able to retreat, and they won't be able to otherwise. So Odysseus starts with this appeal. Hey, we are going to be seriously screwed if we don't get some help here. As he puts it a little while later, this is the last chance to save your countrymen. Now notice, he also invokes Peleus here, which we'll come back to, because he's not the only one to invoke Peleus, and it's clear that Achilles has a very strong relationship to his father. Um, so notice that what specifically he invokes here. Is it not true, my friend, that your father Peleus told you as he sent you off with Agamemnon? My son, as for strength, Hera and Athena will bless you if they wish, but it is up to you to control your proud spirit. A friendly heart is far better. Steer clear of scheming strife so that Greeks young and old will honor you. You have forgotten what the old man said, but you can still let go of your anger right now. Odysseus 
after going with, here is the situation, let's talk strategy, moves to remember what your father said, it is unwise to hold on to resentment, rage, and strife. If you have a friendly heart, the Greeks will honor you, but you can still let go of your anger. And once he says this, this is where he introduces the swag that Agamemnon is offering. And it is impressive. We got gold bars, we got cauldrons, we got racehorses, we got pretty girls, we've got, you know, tripods, we've got, like, all sorts of swag there. We also get, if you successfully sack the city, you will get included behind door number two, you will get to marry one of Agamemnon's daughters, officially become his adopted son, and inherit, like, multiple cities. Like, seven of the cities that Agamemnon is king over you will then be able to be king of. Like, basically Agamemnon is going to adopt Achilles as an official son, put him on the same level as Orestes, who is Agamemnon's, like, legitimate son by Clytemnestra, who, you know, he's got his own thing. We read about him a good bit in Apollodorus. We'll probably talk about him again later. Um, so this is, again, a pretty good offer here. Like, he's offering virtually half his kingdom to Achilles, both to inherit and to be king over now in his own right. But notice that Odysseus suspects that this isn't going to be good enough. After all of the swag that he lists, after all of the stuff that Agamemnon has offered, Odysseus adds, all this he will do, line 301, if you give up your grudge. But if Agamemnon is too hateful to you, himself and his gifts, think of all the others suffering up and down the line, and of the glory you will win for them. They will honor you like a god. And don't forget Hector. You just might get him now. He's coming in close, deluded into thinking that he has no match in the Greek army that has landed on the beach. Agamemnon's offer is really good, but it is at the end of the day just swag. And Achilles responds by saying that the swag is not enough, which apparently Odysseus anticipates because notice that his last words are not, wow, that's a lot of awesome swag, you'd be a fool not to take it, but rather also think of all the people, your countrymen, the soldiers, suffering up and down the line and the glory you will win for them. He appeals not to the mercenary tendencies here, he appeals not on behalf of the gold, but on behalf of the glory the honor, which is right where Achilles was upset all along. He says, and don't forget Hector. This is your opportunity to kill him and win even greater honor. Because if you kill Hector, you will be recognized as the greatest soldier of the Greeks. Even Agamemnon will be unable to deny it. Hector is the greatest Trojan. Therefore, there is no honor greater on this battlefield than potentially killing Hector. Now, Achilles largely bypasses the honor argument. But his response is very, very negative. Son of Laertes in the line of Zeus, Odysseus the strategist, I can see that I have no choice but to speak my mind and tell you exactly how things are going to be. Either that, or sit through endless sessions of people whining at me. I hate it like I hate hell, the man who says one thing and thinks another. So this is how I see it. I cannot imagine Agamemnon or any other Greek persuading me, not after the thanks I got for fighting this war, going up against the enemy day after day. It doesn't matter if you stay in camp or fight. In the end, everybody gets the same. Coward and hero get the same reward. You die whether you slack off or work. Notice 
apparently sitting in his tent for the last few days has gotten Achilles to be a little more existential, for lack of a better term. He's not thinking about honor anymore. And that line, coward or hero, get the same reward, you die whether you slack off your work, that's some bitter language there. Who cares whether I beat Hector? Who cares whether I fight this war for you? Either way, I'm going to die. Either way, I come to the same end. And glory, here or honor, that's not even on Achilles' radar right now. Notice why. What do I have for all my suffering, constantly putting my life on the line, like a bird who feeds her chicks, whatever she finds and goes without herself? That's what I've been like, lying awake through sleepless nights in battle for days, soaked in blood, fighting men for their wives. I've raided twelve cities with our ships, and eleven on foot in the fertile Troad, looted them all, brought back heirlooms by the ton, and handed it all over to Atreus' son, who hung back in the camp, raking it in and distributing damn little. What the others did get, they at least got to keep. They all have their prizes. Everyone but me. I'm the only Greek from whom he took something back. He should be happy with the woman he has. Why do the Greeks have to fight the Trojans? Why did Agamemnon lead the army to Troy, if not for the sake of fair-haired Helen? Do you have to be descended from Atreus to love your mate? Every decent sane man loves his woman and cares for her as I did. Loves her from my heart. It doesn't matter that I want her with my spear. He took her, took her right out of my hands, cheated me, and now he thinks that he's going to win me back? He can forget it. Honor is on the radar a little bit here. I should qualify. He does stress. You know, here he was fighting for all these cities, and instead he had to turn over all the swag to Agamemnon, who then distributed it in this parsimonious like, really cheapskate, miserly way, so Achilles only gets a fraction of the swag that he would have won if he had just kept it all for himself. And what's more, then Agamemnon goes a further dishonoring step by taking his woman away. And notice, again, we get evidence that Achilles cares about her more than just a surprise here. Is Atreus the only person who can love his mate? Like, are Agamemnon and Menelaus the only people who know what love is? No, I cared about my woman, too. I loved her from my heart. It doesn't matter that I want her with my spear. So Achilles is grumpy because of Briseis specifically, too. Like, this was a human relationship, not just a possessive relationship. She was not just a slave to him. So that's a bit of a problem. Achilles is grumpy because Agamemnon took somebody away who he cared about. But notice the threat, too. This is line 365 or so. Now that I don't want to fight him anymore, I will sacrifice to Zeus and all gods tomorrow, load my ships, and launch them on the sea. Take a look if you want, if you give a damn, and you'll see my fleet on the Hellespont in the early light, my men rowing hard with good weather from the sea god. He's about to leave. Achilles is done. Like, he's not going to fight. He specifically said he's not going to fight. Now he's saying, and I'm going to take all my stuff and go. Like, there's no point in just sitting on this beach any longer, obviously, so I'm just going to take my stuff and go. That might be very awkward when he tries to leave the next day and finds out that Hector's shooting arrows at him, but again, if Hector's smart, he'll be like, oh, bye Achilles, see you later. And that'll be it. So he passes. Not The gifts do not entertain him or interest him. The honor no longer has any relevance to him because it's coming from a bad hand. Notice he gets specific about Agamemnon especially here. 
like, around line 400, he says, Not even if Agamemnon gave me gifts as numberless as grains or sand or dust would he persuade me or touch my heart, not until he's paid in full for all my grief. His daughter? I would not marry the daughter of Agamemnon, son of Atreus, if she were as lovely as golden Aphrodite or could weave like owl-eyed Athena. Let him choose some other Achaean, more to his lordly taste. If the gods preserve me and I get home safe, Peleus will find me a wife himself. Notice... When Agamemnon is saying, hey, I'll make you my son, I'll let you marry my daughter, Achilles is like, why would I want that? Like, you're a shitbird, and I hate you, and I do not want to be part of your family. I want that less than anything. Like, I would rather die than become part of Agamemnon's family and be, re like, regarded as his son. So, Odysseus was right in anticipating that the offer wasn't as good as it seemed. But then Achilles takes another existential turn here. Nothing is worth my life, he says. This is line 416 or so. Not all the riches they say Troy held before the Greeks came. Not all the wealth in Phoebus Apollo's marble shrine up in Craggy Pytho. Cattle and flocks are there for the taking. You can always get tripods and chestnut horses, but a man's life cannot be won back once his breath has passed beyond his clenched teeth. My mother Thetis, a moving silver grace, tells me two fates sweep me on to my death. If I stay here and fight, I'll never return home, but my glory will be undying forever. If I return home to my dear fatherland, my glory is lost, but my life will be long, and death that ends all will not catch me soon. As for the rest of you, I would advise you too to sail back home, since there's no chance now of storming Ilion's height. Zeus has stretched his hand above her, making her people bold. What's left for you is to go back to the council and announce my message. It's up to them to come up with another plan to save the ships and the army with them, since this one, based on appeasing my anger, won't work. What was sort of tacit before, what Achilles and Thetis were talking about in Book 1, is now made very clear here. Achilles is presented with two fates. Live a long life and be undistinguished, or live a short life with a great deal of honor. And right now, Achilles is very much leaning towards that first option. Let's live a long life and live it happily. The swag isn't worth it, because what's the point of swag if you're going to be dead? And the honor really doesn't seem worth it at this point either, because again, Agamemnon has taken it all away from him. Achilles doesn't have a reason to fight here. He didn't participate in the oath. He's not violating his honor by leaving. The only reason he was here was to win honor and praise. Now that it's been taken away from him, he really doesn't have a point to stay. And that life, back at home with Peleus, farming and living until the ripe old age, is looking really good right now. And to some degree, I wonder if that isn't the right move if Homer isn't encouraging us to think the same thing. Like, it's hard to say here, especially because we know that Achilles isn't going to live a long life, and he is, in fact, going to come back to the war. And Diomedes especially gets right at this, when, in fact, uh, much later in Book Nine, after everybody has come back, like, Agamemnon's like, well, crap, that didn't work. And Diomedes is like, son of Atreus, glorious Agamemnon, you should never have pleaded with him or offered all those gifts. Achilles was arrogant enough without your help. Let him do what he wants. Stay here or get the hell out. He'll fight later all night when he is ready or a god tells him to. 
Diomedes knows that this is bigger than Achilles. Diomedes recognizes it doesn't matter how badly Achilles is fighting against his fate, it will catch up with him. It's just a matter of time. Now the second appeal that we get is from Phoenix. And Phoenix, Phoenix has a really long speech here, and a lot of it is fairly immaterial. Like, Phoenix gives his whole description of how, like, he was, you know, in a bad family situation, and even thought about killing his own father, and then finally escaped, and Peleus took him in, and it was really nice. And then, and then he, like, raised Achilles like he was his own son. So again, we get a very clear relationship here. You know, Odysseus invokes Peleus by saying, remember, remember Peleus told you to keep your anger in check? And Achilles is like, yeah, whatever. Uh, your swag offer is not nearly as impressive as you think it is. Phoenix responds by saying, dude, I am your dad, for all intents and purposes. And yes, you are wrong to do this. He has this early part of the speech, which again echoes what Odysseus said and what Peleus supposedly said. This is on line 510. You have to master your proud spirit. It's not right for you to have a pitiless heart. Even the gods can bend. Superior as they are in honor, power, and every excellence, they can be turned aside from wrath when humans who have transgressed supplicate them with incense and prayers, with libations and savor of sacrifice. Yes, for prayers are daughters of great Zeus. Lame and wrinkled and with eyes averted, they are careful to follow in folly's footsteps. But folly is strong and fleet and outruns them all, beating them everywhere and plaguing humans who are cured by the prayers when they come behind. Revere the daughters of Zeus when they come, and they will bless you and hear your cry. Reject them and refuse them stubbornly, and they will ask Zeus, Cronus' son, to have folly plague you, so you will pay in pain. No Achilles grant these daughters of Zeus the respect that bends all upright men's minds. If the son of Atreus were not offering gifts and promising more, if he were still raging mad, I would not ask you to shrug off your grudge and help the Greeks, no matter how sore their need. But he is offering gifts and promising more, and he has sent to you a delegation of the best men in the army, your dearest friends. Don't scorn their words or their mission here. And he gives us a myth, for that matter. This whole story of Meleager and the Curities and the Aetolians and how Meleager was sitting in his house nursing his anger because he was apparently slighted by his mother until the Curities were literally climbing over the walls of the city and Meleager finally came out and routed them. But when he did, there was no swag and there was no honor and it kind of sucked for Meleager. Don't be like Meleager, Achilles. Come out. Repent. Relent. Give up your anger. Accept the gifts that Agamemnon is giving you. It's clear that he's upset, it's clear that he's sorry, or he wouldn't be offering this in the first place. And Achilles isn't interested in this either. I don't need that kind of honor, Phoenix, he says. Again, he's kind of over the honor that Agamemnon can offer. My honor comes from Zeus, and I will have it among these beaked ships as long as my breath still remains and my knees still move. Now he accepts Phoenix. Like, he even invites Phoenix to stay the night, and apparently Phoenix is going to sleep with him, and they're all going to leave in the morning. Like, he's going to take Phoenix, and he's leaving. So Phoenix, he at least listens to. He hears him out. But it falls on deaf ears. And if Odysseus's offer was crap at the end of the day, for the reasons that Achilles sort of acknowledges and, you know, draws out, like, why would he want all this stuff from Agamemnon when he can't stand Agamemnon? Phoenix's offer is much more reasonable. Think of your friends. Think of the people who are suffering. Think of... Agamemnon's apology. Even the gods bend, so don't be so stubborn as this. And yet Achilles remains stubborn. Odysseus offers him 
crap. And Achilles at this point is smart enough to realize that it's crap. Phoenix gives him a much better argument. You're doing the wrong thing, he says. And Achilles can't fight that fight back against that charge. Except by saying, I don't care. Which is where we get Ajax. And I kind of love Ajax's argument here, because it really isn't an argument. He just, like, straight up insults Achilles. Son of Laertes in the line of Zeus, resourceful Odysseus, it's time we go. I do not think we will accomplish what we were sent here to do. Our job now is to report this news quickly, bad as it is. They will be waiting to hear. Achilles has made his great heart savage. He is a cruel man and has no regard for the love that his friends honored him with, beyond anyone else who has camps with the ships. Pitiless. A man accepts compensation for a murdered brother, a dead son. The killer goes on living in the same town after paying blood money, and the bereaved restrains his proud spirit and broken heart because he has received payment. But you, the gods, have replaced your heart with flint and malice because of one girl, one single girl, while we are offering you seven of the finest women to be found and many other gifts. Show some generosity and some respect. We have come under your roof, we few out of the entire army, trying hard to be the friends you care for most of all. And Achilles is polite to this charge, that he is pitiless, that he has no heart, that he is savage and cruel. Like, the most nasty that Achilles gets is, I won't live a, lift a finger in this bloody war until Priam's illustrious son Hector comes to the Myrmidon ship and huts, killing Greeks as he goes and torching the fleet. I.e., I'm going to protect my own ass and I don't give a crap what's happening to you. But Ajax isn't necessarily wrong here. Like, Ajax... Ajax is a really big dude. Ajax is a really strong dude. He's not necessarily a terribly smart dude. And the arguments that we are seeing here from Odysseus, Phoenix, and Ajax reflect three different perspectives on what is important and what is valuable here. For Odysseus, he's trying to outthink Achilles. Here is the offer that Agamemnon has given you. I realize it's not going to be terribly impressive to you, so think about the honor that you'll win from all of these men because that's what you were originally upset about in the first place. And Achilles counters that. Really, it's not about the honor. Really, I'm not interested in the gifts, and I'm definitely not going to accept any honor if it's coming from Agamemnon, because that guy's the worst. Odysseus tries to outmaneuver Achilles and fails, because he fails to realize what Achilles is actually interested in right now. Achilles' existential bent isn't interested in what Odysseus has to offer. Phoenix, however, offers wisdom. Phoenix is an older dude. He knows Achilles down to his bones. He recognizes what the real problem is here. Achilles is not interested in fighting because of his stubbornness. He is just grumpy and mad. And yeah, he doesn't want to die, and he can't blame him for that. But at the same time, he recognizes it would be better if Achilles did go and fight, not because of the swag, not because of the honor, not because of all of these things, but because... It's good to be virtuous, and it's good to do good things for others, and it's good to support your friends, like Odysseus and Ajax and Phoenix and like the rest of the Greeks. But Achilles is, again, angry and stubborn and refuses to listen. Achilles rejects Odysseus because he sees through Odysseus's stratagem. Odysseus re or Achilles rejects Phoenix because he is not patient enough to hear wisdom at this point. Ajax... 
Ajax is right insofar as he calls Achilles out for being a monster. He follows uh, Phoenix on that front. He has his own modicum of wisdom. But notice that he also misses a lot of what has been going on here. Like, he's like, why are you upset about losing one woman when we're going to give you seven more? Like, were you just spacing when Achilles was talking about how much he cared about Briseis? That this is more than just prizes and swag and, and women? Like, on the one hand, Ajax is like, I would totally take that deal. That's a hell of a deal. That's a lot of swag. I want swag. Why don't I get swag? On the other hand, Ajax is like, you're also being a jackass and you're hanging us out to dry. And he is totally right about that. Ajax is shallow. But his shallowness includes the wisdom of Phoenix. His shallowness is one part, you know, I like swag because swag is awesome on the same level that Agamemnon is totally missing what's going on with Achilles. But his wisdom is, it, but it also includes the wisdom of, you know, and also I support my friends because friends are good to support. He doesn't have the logic that Phoenix does. He just has the platitude. You need to support your friends. You have no regard for the love that your friends honored you with. Ajax is just like, I fight for love and I fight for swag, and you are rejecting both of them. Homer, through examining this from the perspective of Odysseus and, and Phoenix, has basically said, the swag isn't worth it, but the love is. Ajax doesn't care, he just wants both. Phoenix sees the difference. Achilles can't. Achilles is just angry and stubborn. His rage is overtaking him. He is sulking it out in his tent, and no one's going to change his mind at this point. And that's tough. It's hard to say exactly how much Achilles has changed between Book 1 and Book 9. It's clear that he has. Apparently sitting in his tent has gotten him meditative and pensive. He's apparently wearing black and putting on eyeliner at this point and getting very sad about the fact that, like, he's going to die at some point. And why would he bother to fight in this war if he's not going to get anything out of it? That's a step forward for Achilles from I have been dishonored and now I want all the Greeks to die back in book one. But we're still not at real wisdom yet. Achilles is still sulking too much, too stubborn to hear what Phoenix is actually offering. The insights that he would have gotten if he had paid more attention to what his father had instructed once upon a time. We've still got room to grow, in short. The trouble is, this is not a place for growing. It's a war. we got to make these decisions on the fly. And as much as Ajax is a moron and clearly doesn't understand why he is fighting for the two things that he's fighting for, namely the swag and the love, Ajax is kind of the perfect soldier in that respect. He doesn't need to know. He doesn't need to sit in his tent and figure everything out. He doesn't need to have all the philosophy. He's got it. It's just been pre-digested by Agamemnon and by Nestor and passed down to him, and he's retained enough of it to, you know, be able to get by with it. He's a big, strong dude. He doesn't need to philosophize. He just needs to break heads, get swag and women, and bring them back to his tent and enjoy them. He fights, and he fucks, and really, that's all that Ajax wants from life. And can you blame him, really? The reasons for these things, the reasons for these platitudes, the reasons that soldiers fight, those are articulated in the other voices here. 
Odysseus and his interest in stratagem, his love of honor and swag here. Phoenix and his wisdom, the same sort of wisdom that we saw reflected in Hector when Hector talked about fighting for his family and fighting for his friends and fighting for his home. That's what's wisdom here. But rage, the rage that Achilles feel for, feels, the passion that he has, is controlling him at this point. He can't hear wisdom. He can't understand it. He is locked in the throes of his own emotion. And that makes him choose poorly here. Because the right move is to accept the swag. Because there's nothing wrong with swag. And Agamemnon is definitely offering it with an open hand. Take the swag and then go fight for your own reasons. Take the swag and also defend your friends, defend your countrymen, defend your homeland. That's what you're supposed to do. Achilles is missing that, because he's got a grudge. And he would rather nurse it than think about what his actual friends have to say to him. And Diomedes is, at the end of the day, right. Either way, he's coming back to the fight eventually. That's for sure. So next time we continue in our doldrums of the Iliad, we have two chapters, book 10 and 11, where we will get a couple more non-starts, but also some weird, fun hijinks from Odysseus and Diomedes. Um, so we will look forward to talking about that with you soon.